I couldn't visualize going to Wharton to complete my degree in finance and economics if no one told me about Wharton. From the very first vision I had, which was to not use drugs for the rest of my life, that was my first vision. And I wrote that down. I still have the paper I wrote it on. And then it went to, I want to go to college. And I wasn't sure what, what would happen at college, but I figured I want to be a businessman. And then I want to work on Wall Street. And then while I was at Wharton, some people came down from Harvard Business School. And they said, we want to talk to you about uh, potentially doing an MBA at some point at Harvard. And this is our program. And this is what we look for in candidates to do MBA degrees. And man, oh, then I had this vision. Oh, my God, I could go to Harvard. And I just saw myself there. I'm going to be a Harvard graduate. Hey guys, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice. And what a delight it is to share with you my passion and interest in the brain and how understanding your own brain and the brain of others can lead to greater personal and organizational influence, impact, and ultimately the power to position yourself at the highest level. Whether you're a leader, work in a creative field, or simply interested in building better relationships, this is the show for you. Before we jump into today's incredibly inspiring episode, I'm going to ask you for two things. One, leave a comment about the podcast wherever you're listening. And secondly, share the link to the episode, either on social media or with a close friend. You can also email me for feedback or just to get in contact, podcast at timothymaurice.com. Now, what a privilege it is to share the following conversation. Today, I introduce you to the story of Charles Henderson. Charles is one of the most intelligent, authentic, and kind thinkers and professionals I know. Charles has an MBA from Harvard, but leading up to this achievement, he overcame the challenging streets of New York where he dealt drugs and for a moment used heroin. In this conversation, he not only shares his story, but we're joined by Dr. Colleen Lightbody, the founder of BrainWise. And collectively, we take you into Charles's story to extract mindset insights and lessons to help you see that we all have our own harrowing to Harvard possibilities. Whatever mental or mindset shifts you're trying to make, whatever you're here to their story is, you're going to be inspired and offered five insights to help you on your journey. Meet Charles Henderson and Dr. Colleen Lightbody. Enjoy. Charles Henderson, Colleen Lightbody, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate you guys joining me on what I believe will be a very valuable conversation for anyone hoping to make a mental leap from one reality to another. Whether you're an employee and you want to be an entrepreneur, whether you're an unhealthy person and you want to become healthy, single and want to get married, <laughs> or maybe you're married and want to be single, <laughs> whatever your leap is, you know, maybe you are hoping to make a creative leap from not tapping into your creative self and deciding to fully embrace your dormant creative powers, whatever leap that is, I'm here for it. This is the conversation I think you're going to enjoy. So Charles, before we jump into your heroin to Harvard story, tell us why you wanted Colleen to join us. Colleen and I had worked together uh, on programs for Duke Corporate Education, which many of you out there will be familiar with. They, they call it the Ivy League of the South in the U.S. And I was impressed, extremely impressed with Colleen's knowledge of the brain and not just her knowledge, but her story as well. I mean, Colleen has an incredible story about how she got into this. And the thing that really hit me was, was when Dr. Colleen spoke about her 
not really being a great student. When I met her, we, I connected with her on many levels. One, just on her personal experience and her story. And we're going to talk about how we connect with each other using stories. And also her knowledge of the brain just blew me away. And I, it's not my uh, field of expertise, but I have studied it a lot because it does relate significantly to the work that I do. And everything she said just hit me, hit me, hit me hard. Like, wow, this is incredible. And I'm, I'm sitting in the, the classroom. We're working together and I'm taking notes the whole time. I, I'm actually a student when I'm, I'm a co-facilitator with her. Uh, so that's really what brought us together. And I just thought she would be ideal for this program because I want to connect uh, what we're talking about uh, uh, in terms of going from wherever you are to wherever you want to be, from here to there, from this reality to, to a new reality. I, I want to bring in how the brain actually can help us facilitate that move. Perfect. Colleen, uh, why did you accept the invitation? <laughs> I suppose two reasons. Um, one is that about 15 years ago, I made a commitment to myself to never say no to anything that scares me ever again. And Charles is a little bit scary in terms of <laughs> he challenges me and asks me questions and is not um, not afraid to put me on the spot. So and I'm always a little bit nervous about uh, presenting. So uh, Charles, I didn't say no, I said yes. And I think the second reason that probably maybe aligning very much to what you said, Charles, is really my passion is about helping people understand how their brains work in order to make a difference in their lives. So I'm not a neuroscientist. I do speak with a fairly good um, sense of the biology of the brain, but it's more about how do we apply that knowledge to make um, our lives more meaningful, which Charles is certainly a living embodiment of. Thank you. Thank you so much for stepping into your fear. I really appreciate having both of you. Charles, I want you to imagine it's the old days you know, before Zoom. We're sitting in a conference room. Let's imagine we are in Cape Town. The conference room overlooks the sea. There are 3,000 people. People have flown in from 18 countries, people ranging from literally Russia, to Singapore, to South Korea, to the U.S., many of which have not been to New York, where you were born and raised. Give us a snapshot of your heroin the Harvard story started in New York. I'm from Tuckahoe, New York. Let's start there. Most people, when, when they hear New York, they think New York City. But New York is also a state, which is why they call it New York, New York. So I'm from yeah. Tuckahoe, New York, which is very close to the Bronx, actually. Maybe a 10-minute drive. Once I, I leave my home where I grew up, and I'm, I'm crossing the border into the Bronx in 10 minutes. So it's close to New York City, but not in New York, in New York City. I grew up in this small town uh, in public housing. We called the projects. And at the age of 12, I started using drugs. I mean, imagine that you have a kid and many of you out there have sons and daughters at, at the age of 12. By the time I turned 16, I was using heroin intravenously and cocaine. I was expelled from the public high school that I went to and all my friends went to at the end of the 10th grade for punching the English teacher in the chest. I failed every class but two that year. In the two classes that I didn't fail, I passed with the lowest passing grade. A year later, I was arrested on the school grounds for using drugs. 
Shortly after that, I was arrested again for possession of stolen property. All in all, I, I was arrested for drug-related crimes four times. I was arrested for selling drugs. I was arrested for, for grand theft larceny, which is a possession, which was possession of a stolen car in Harlem, New York. I was chased all over the city. I like to say I got my first degree from UCLA, which is what, which is what we call the university on the corner of Lenox Avenue in Harlem. That's where it all began. And that's where it wow. came to a crashing end. Insane, bro. Like, the, this is the first time I'm hearing this. I mean, we've, we've known each other for a while and we've also had mutual friends. And I think I've even seen a little bit of a video, but I, <laughs> I, that's the first time I'm hearing this. Let's sort of fast track a little bit. That's the backdrop. Then you somehow got yourself on your feet and you started studying. Take us from there. So the transition really came when I was sentenced uh, for drug-related crimes to 30 days in, in, the, in the county penitentiary and two years in the drug rehabilitation center, upstate New York. Two years in treatment. This was crazy, right? I mean, at, of those two years, I spent 19 and a half months in a facility, upstate New York, and the rest of that time was transition time, was still in, in drug treatment. While I was away in this drug treatment program, I got a vision. Now, this vision came to me because of role models that came in and out of this drug program to tell their stories. And I was amazed at the stories I heard from people who were rehabilitated drug addicts who were much worse than I was. And it just hit me that, wow, there's a better way. There's another way. And if these individuals could do it, maybe I can do it. And that's where it started. I decided to start studying while I was there. They had a, a small uh, classroom where a teacher would come a few days a week. And I studied for what we call the general equivalency diploma, the GED, which is uh, the lowest level of a high school uh, matriculant diploma you can get. And I passed. That was the first thing I had ever accomplished positive in my, in my life at the age of 19. I was 19 when I got sent away. Uh, and when I came out, I decided, hey, you know what? I, I think I can I can go to college. And this came to me. Going to college came to me overhearing a conversation uh, of uh, my mother talking with one of her former colleagues um, who used to work with her. And she was talking about how she left the job to go back to school. And I'm, I'm like a fly in the wall listening to this conversation. And the whole time, I'm like imagining myself. Here, here is another vision coming to me right I'm imagining myself going back to school which I never I was I was expelled from two schools the high school that wow. all my friends went to and the school they send you to after you've been expelled from the public high school I was rejected from the school for rejects wow so after you got your GED was the first school you went to was it a community college or was it Penn it was community college. So there was no way I, I could have gone to any uh, university. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, if you looked at my high school transcript, it was, it was horrific. Right. And I, you know, I had a, I had a rap sheet. I had, you know, I, I was still on probation when I came out and, and okay. started college. So it was, it was the perfect entry. Westchester community college was where I started. And it was, it, as you know, these colleges are, anyone can go. 
anyone who screwed up in high school or even if they're just not sure what they want to do and they want to go and experiment. It's a, it's affordable. It's cheap. I got financial aid to go. And that, that's where I started. So you went to this community college after the community college. How do you make that shift from there to Penn? I was lucky. I had a, a professor. His name is John Christensen. He was the chairman of the Department for Business Administration. I, I decided to study business because I, I felt I was a businessman of sorts. Right? I had a, mm. you know, yeah, I, yeah, I sold. Yeah. I so I had an operation. I'm not, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it's the truth. I I had a team of people working for me. I had to focus customer service, sales management, uh, procurement, uh, quality control. I, I did the whole thing. So I, I focused yeah. on business. I basically took decide to channel all the energy that I put into doing the negative into something positive. And it works. So this professor said to me one day, he said, Charles, what are your plans when you leave here, when you finish? I told him what I wanted to do. I mean, I can't use the profanity, I don't think, on here to say exactly what he said. But when I told him where I wanted to go, he said, why do you want to go to a S H, yeah. you know what else? School like that. I was shocked because <clears throat> I knew people who went to this, you know, respectable, you know, small university. He said, forget about that place. You want to go to Wharton. I didn't know what Wharton was. Wharton. So he made arrangements for me to go to the University of Pennsylvania's campus, which is where the Wharton School is. That's the business school at, at the university, which is Ivy League, and yeah. meet one of his former students. And this guy, Tommy Yellen, walked me around the campus and I was floored. I was blown away. I had never seen, I never even imagined what a, a university campus uh, would be like. And everybody, Timothy, everyone I passed by on this university campus looked smart. They all looked smart. And I just thought, <laughs> wow, could I be like that? Could I be one of these smart looking people? And I, I set the goal. That was it. I was I was convinced from that moment. This is the school I want to go to. And when I completed my courses at at Westchester Community College, I applied to that school and no other school. It was either there or nowhere. I was going to come back and hit it again. That's how determined I was. And that that's how it, that's how that. Of course, I had to do well to get into that school. But I had mentors. I had support systems. Uh, and I, I, I believe I. I I got two B's at this community college in the two and a half years I was there and all the rest were A's. I, I, I amazed myself. Yeah. So I think we got the picture. You built yourself, you had a vision, you had allies, you had networks, you drew on your own sort of strengths and background. You left Penn Wharton and then you went to HBS and that's the, the snapshot of the heroin to harvest story. Before we bring in Dr. Lightbody and jump into the five insights from Charles journey, I want you to take a moment and think about the extraordinary benefit you may have gained from the before chapter of your life. Far too often we see the before chapter, the old, the negative, as not producing brain power. But as you can hear, and will continue to hear, the heroin chapter of Charles's life did more for his mental networks than you would suspect. I think what is really poignant about Charles's story is about the age where he really became exposed to drugs and started using. The concept of neuroplasticity is really, really important here, especially, first of all, in terms of how easy it is to become addicted in such a, at such a vulnerable age, because it, between about 11, 12, 13, is where the brain starts to prune away all the amazingly 
massive amount of XX synapses that we have and start to solidify the neural networks that we're going to be using in later life. So at that very critical period, Charles starts embedding these neural pathways, which are to do with addiction and habits that is not only behavioral, but it's also physical, social, emotional, and so many different levels. Change that neurochemistry towards something much more constructive. So almost giving himself the same, and if I can be so bold as to say hi, from the goals and the visions and the social connections, he replaced the high of the drug with those things. As you're speaking, I'm like, wow, it wasn't all negative when you were in the heroin state because you were also developing pathways for business, that there were strong pathways being laid down in that what what society would see as a negative state. Tell us, I want to talk a little bit more before we jump into these five steps about how good you were at drugs. I don't know if anyone has ever asked you that. You know, like, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about that because I think this is a powerful point because people go, I'm leaving one reality to another reality. Take from this first reality what was really good and take it to the next reality. That's a, that's a great question. I, obviously, I, I wasn't that good at drugs because I got caught at a very early age. <laughs> Uh, so I would not recommend that as a career path for anyone listening here. Uh, but what I will say is this, the thing that I learned, because there's competition on the streets selling drugs. Yep. And the thing that I learned was that I could, I could, I could beat my competition with the best quality product on the street. So I had to use my contacts in, you know, fortunately, I had uh, went to this school, you know, the school for rejects I told you about. It was actually called yeah. um, Educage. Imagine that, a school with the, with the word cage oh, in it. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. But wow. at this school, I met some people from White Plains, which is a town, uh, a small city just north of, of where I grew up. And I was able to get introduced to people uh, who had drugs that sold drugs at, at quantity uh, for a good price. So I was able to get good quality product at a great price. And that was how I beat the market. Plus I was friendly. I also understood the importance of, of developing relationships with your customers. So I always laughed and joked. I talked about, I would make up funny names for my, uh, for my marijuana. So I branded it. I called it the not responsible. (laughs) I saw because I cannot, because it is so good, I cannot be held responsible for what wow. you do after you smoke it, right? So, I, I mean, I was mostly a, a marijuana sales. Every now and then I'd, you know, pick up a, a small quantity of, of some heroin and cocaine with individuals who came from where I lived that, that also used that and were, were not comfortable going into the very rough parts of Harlem to buy it. Uh, I would, I would, you know, handle that kind of business but i was mostly in marijuana i mean the part i'm loving about this is that you laid down pathways that were about understanding managing people systems understanding branding even you know tailoring language around your product and and maybe you're alluding to this to a certain extent with charles is that what has the been the benefits because he wouldn't be who he is today if he hadn't had the life experiences that he'd had and i think that's Yeah, I guess I guess that's what I teach my, my clients as well is to embrace the fact that the hard times 
can be the spur to action or to do something differently. And not only that, but also that sense of vulnerability that and openness that Charles has that creates such trust for other people. So not having to be perfect or brilliant or smart or anything, but actually your very vulnerability can actually be the, the impetus for other people's change. And I know Charles has got a very strong um, a, a sense of, of his commitment to, to supporting other people's shifts. Um, I'm probably waffling a bit here, but just to answer it quickly and complete it is that people say to me, you must have the most amazing life knowing all this stuff about how to manage your brain. And I say, it's because I have to wrestle these things every day of my life. That's why I'm so good at it. All right, let's jump in. Let's make that transition. Let's jump into, Charles, you've got many insights. Colleen, we could talk all day. We could do a whole seminar on this, but let's sort of narrow the conversation a bit for anyone who want to go from one reality to another. Let's talk about five ways. Number one, you have vision. You mentioned it, you've alluded to it a little bit already, but share how vision helped you go from heroin to Harvard. I had to see something uh, beyond where I was. I, growing up in the projects, I didn't know anyone. Uh, there was no, I didn't have a neighbor who went to college or university. <laughs> you know, in that kind of community, you don't have the exposure. So the vision generally comes from some place, right? It doesn't come from out of nowhere. You can't visualize going to university if you don't know what a university is, if you never heard of it. I couldn't visualize going to Wharton to complete my degree in finance and economics if no one told me about Wharton. So what I, what I learned is that from the very first vision I had, which was to not use drugs for the rest of my life, that was my first vision. And I wrote that down. I still have the paper I wrote it on in the, in the, the New Year's resolution. So this New Year's resolution stuck, right? Because I've been drug-free, addiction-free ever since then. Uh, I wrote it down and I kept it and I still have it that I will remain drug-free for the rest of my life. And then it went to, I want to go to college. And I wasn't sure what, what would happen at college, but I figured I want to be a businessman. And then I want to go to Wharton University because it's, it was rated at the time, and it actually still is the number one undergraduate school for finance uh, in the U.S. And then I want to work on Wall Street. I got the vision from a woman who told me, Charles, the analyst on Wall Street is like a wizard in an ivory tower. That hit wow. me like, wow. And I've envisioned myself. I, I thought I want to be the wizard. And that became my goal. And I put all my energy into that. And then while I was at Wharton, some people came down from Harvard Business School. And they said, we want to talk to you about uh, potentially doing an MBA at some point at Harvard. And this is our program. And this is what we look for in candidates to do MBA degrees. And man, oh, then I had this vision. Oh, my God, I could go to Harvard. And I just saw myself there. I'm going to be a Harvard graduate. So each step of the way, even coming here, I, I had a vision at some point when I made some friends from South Africa. And I thought, you know what? I think I want to make my life here in South Africa. And I want to be independent. I want to have my own business and be independent again. It's like I want I want to I want legal what I call legal drug money. Right. I want a business wow. that's legal that I can hustle and sell myself and my services the same way I did on drugs and be free. And that's that's wow. what I do. You know, it's crazy how I came across some work from Dr. Tamar Jindler from Yale University. She has this concept called a leaf, A-L-I-E-F, where basically we assimilate in our imagination, we assimilate and we experience our future 
and it triggers our mirror neurons and we, it triggers us to start experiences. So when you saw yourself in your vision as the wizard in an ivory tower, when you saw yourself uh, in this future state, each time you had your vision, you were using this a leaf. Colleen, when someone is creating a vision for themselves, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in their brain. Well, I think, I think, first of all, it's very important to understand that there were two things at, at play here. First of all, there was that negative motivation to change, which was uh, being put into rehab, being arrested, etc. But that only created the spur to change. Um, a, negative, a negative impulse does not create long-term sustainable change, but the, it often creates that initial shift and the need to change. What then sustains it is the focus on what is the benefit that the change is going to to give me. And that's really what Charles was doing with the, the, the visioning, the goal setting, and exposing himself to what was possible. So in order to change anything, you have to first want to. And what he, he had that, um, that, that desire to shift, that, that determination that this was not a sustainable way of living. And then what was possible and expose himself to it. But then in terms of creating vision and embedding vision, it has to be kept alive. So, you know, you can have a goal, but unless you, unless you keep it alive, it's, it's, it's not definitely not going to be something that you're going to be motivated. So he kept his motivation going by, um, a really evocative, uh, the wizard, you know, being on Wall Street, provocative, evocative, meaningful. And all of these things were doing that they were stimulating, um, the, the right kind of neurochemistry that he was needing in order to, keep the self-discipline, the determination, and continually attaching himself to that uh, vision and that goal. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I want to I go to number two quickly, knowledge on how to make my vision a reality. Take us through what you mean, Charles, when you say knowledge on how to make my vision a reality. So it's, it's one thing to say, <laughs> I want to, you know, I want to go to Wharton, or I want to work on Wall Street, right? Or I want to go to Harvard. But you there's there's a way to do that right um there's a way to get from wherever you are to where you want to be there's an efficient route there's an inefficient route there's a road that will get you there and there's a road that will get you somewhere you don't want to be so for me knowledge knowledge is you know that old cliche knowledge is power uh it's a cliche because there's a lot of truth to that right um so every step of the way i had to figure out how to do it when i was in the drug program uh, I won't say it was easy, but it was easy to get the knowledge because that's what drug programs do, right? You go there and they, they know, they, they show you everything you need to do to get off drugs. It's up to the person to decide whether they want to do it or not. And I took that seriously. I did everything. In fact, I did it so well. They thought I was faking. Really? <laughs> yeah. They thought I was faking. Um, and, and going, going to, to Wharton. I had a, a my mentor. He he told me he said you can't get any more B's. My first term there, yeah, I got I got a B. My first term, I got a B. He said that's it. You gotta get straight A's after this. They don't take people with B's at Wharton. Uh, and then he gave me the support I needed. I needed the tutor for calculus, or I needed the tutor for accounting to help me with that, right? And so that's what I mean. You know, going to work, going to Harvard. They came down. They said this is what we look for in in people who mm. apply for MBAs at Harvard. I actually went to Harvard and I met the people in the admissions office and I spoke to them and I said, this is who I am. I plan to be a student here. Tell me what I need to do. 
in addition to what I think I know. And they told me, and I did. I mean, it was work, right? <laughs> but the knowledge of how to go from here to there is so crucial. So sometimes you talk to people who did it. Sometimes you talk to people who maybe they haven't done it, but they know how to do it, right? And sometimes you just have to do the research, which is a lot easier today because you're, all you have to do is go online and find credible sources of knowledge, and then you act on it. You know, I'm, I'm really seeing that a lot of the mental pathway you set when you are much younger and getting the knowledge in your neighborhood and understand how to navigate and understanding how to get the right people around you, these really did set you up well. It's just that you frame the story and the moral agenda of your life very differently. Let's move to number three, and I'm going to come to you, Colleen, in a second. Let's talk a little bit about good habits. And while Charles tells us his thoughts about good habits, Colleen, I want you to tell us what's happening, how the brain starts on this neuroplastic journey um, as its habits are influencing the ability for the brain to change itself, okay? Habit is one of my, this is one of my favorites. I, I learned this when I was in, in the drug program. I learned this thing about habit, right? Um, I read this book by Ogman Dino. It's called The Greatest Salesman in the World. This is a book my younger brother gave me while I was in drug treatment. And man, I tell you, it really, it was exactly what I needed at the time. And in this book, he talks about habit. And he says that uh, we are slaves to our habits. So if we must be slaves to our habits, let us be slaves to good habits. And it hit wow. me. I thought, wow, I was a slave to my drug habit. I could get up in the morning sick with symptoms from heroin withdrawal. No money, no way to, to get that drug, no plan. And by the end of the day, I will have I found a way. And I may wow. not, I, I, I will have left home that morning. I may not have come back home until the following morning, having not slept. So I thought, well, once I got to university, hey, no one can outwork me, right? So I developed mm. study habits. <laughs> I remember when I got to Wharton, I, yeah, I was a straight A student. I was confident. I, 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 you know, I knew how to handle this academic thing. I had my first accounting exam, <laughs> Timothy. I flipped, there were seven pages. Each page was a problem. One, go to the next one, two, to the next one. I got to number seven. I had no idea where to start answering these questions. And I looked up at, from my exam table in a room with about 200 students taking the same exam and they were all writing furiously. And I'm sitting there wondering, what in the world are they writing? I don't even know where to start, right? Yeah. I, I failed that exam, I got 30. So then I decided, okay, I need to, I need to correct this, right? So I found out support services I could get for tutoring, and I increased my study schedule to nine hours a day. Now this was wow. before before exams. I studied before dinner. I had to find three hours to squeeze in. I would have dinner, take a nap. This is my routine: have dinner. I would work out before dinner, get my nap, and from 9 o'clock at night until 3 o'clock in the morning, I put in six hours. That was my routine. When the exams came, I would take my pillow to the study hall, 24-hour study hall. And when I, when I was ready to sleep, I didn't have time to go home, get in the bed, and come back. I put my head down on that pillow, and I slept. Sometimes I would go to the exam carrying my pillow. Wow. People talk about habits all the time. I think what's really coming through here in this particular point number three is that you understood that if you did not shift that the shift of your goal and your vision wasn't going to be a reality 
What's happening when you are creating new habits in the brain, Colleen? So, well, we definitely are talking about the wiring of our brain. We're talking about neuroplasticity. So what we have to remember that a, a good habit is short-term pain, long-term gain. There's your vision. Uh, a bad habit is short-term gain, long-term pain. And Charles really flipped his understanding about that in order to actually create the reality that he wanted. Um, and this is the one thing that a lot of people miss. He's going to have to put in the effort. He's going to have, there's going to have to be discipline. There's going to be, have, have to be self-control. And he created structures in order to facilitate that. So, I mean, some wonderful structures like having routine, for example, profoundly useful in order to create new habits. Um, having obviously the vision. He also created uh, the, the power nap. Uh, Charles, I love that story that you, that you used to kind of nap before studying because we know that what you were doing was refueling your brain. So in some ways, unwittingly, you, without even knowing it, you were doing some really profoundly useful things to facilitate good thinking and good learning. And then also just in terms of what he was doing, he was rewiring his brain. I know it's a, it's a, you know, a trite kind of uh, analogy for, for hardwiring, but he was rewiring his brain towards more functional habits, understanding that it took effort, it took commitment, and it took will. But every single time he was doing it, what he was doing is he was actually creating those neural pathways that were more constructive rather than the destructive ones that he'd been so efficient at creating before. A quick note before Charles's insight number four, which is developing allies for support. I want to stress that we want to do more than just tell Charles's story. We want you to have practical tools to know that the brain can and is wired to change itself. That change process is what Colleen is referring to as neuroplasticity. New habits literally alter your brain structure. You are not stuck where you are. Okay, now to point number four. The, the old cliche, no man is an island, or no person is an island, is so true. I, everything I did, I had the support of someone. I just call them allies. You know, it's a popular term being used in the States now when it comes to the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, discussion. But for me, an ally is anyone who, who provided me with support. I ran a, I ran a New York Marathon in, in, in 2003. And I ran it in 2003 because I was drug-free, drug free of addiction for 25 years. That was a milestone for me. And I decided every mile, right, it's 26 miles in the marathon, which is 42 kilometers. For every mile, for the first 25 miles, I would run that mile and recognize the individuals who helped me through that year of my life, helped me to, wow. to realize my vision of my life. And there were many, right? When I got to the, to the 26 mile, I ran that mile. That was my last mile for my friends who could not run because they were either dead and gone from drugs or incarcerated because of drugs or just still strung out on drugs. Um, so these people who helped me and some of them were, were the individuals who were still on drugs. Right? I have allies that go back uh, to my drug years and they're still allies. <sighs> I had to have help. You can't do it alone. Um, these allies were across the board, Timothy. I mean, I had uh, friends, I had colleagues, I had mentors, bosses, professors. The secretary sometimes would help me. Uh, subordinates. I, I remember when I applied for my fellowship for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, it was a two-year fellowship for, for Harvard Business School. 
there were 93 students at, at Harvard that applied and only three got it. I was, I was one of the lucky three. I had to go in for an interview and I, I, I kind of made friends with the secretary in the office. It was an interesting experience. So I would call her. She asked for information about the company as, as I was preparing and she would send me brochures and things in the mail and refer me to people to talk to. And then we would just have chats. I would say, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And she would talk to me. Uh, and then I came in for the interview and I was sitting there with, with six other people interviewing. And I'm having this conversation with, with the secretary as everybody waits. And I could see the other five people are looking at me like thinking, what's going on here? Like, how do they know each other? Right. Um, yeah. But it was because I, I befriended her and I listened to her and I chatted with her and I, and I showed concern for, you know, what was important in her life, not just what I need in order to get the fellowship. And you know what happened? I got the call uh, the week after my interview and the woman said, Charles, I, I never call people. We just send a letter in the mail. She says, but I had to call you. I had to call you because I wanted you to know the reason why we gave you this fellowship was for one, we just felt you were the kind of person it was initially designed for. And she says, two, the secretary came in at the end of the day and said, I think Charles should get it. She said, that never happened. But it spoke to your humility, she said, uh, that you could, at your stage of professional development, befriend the secretary. She became an ally, right? And she was white. We got all these racial issues in America, right? I I had white allies you know, going all the way back to when I was on drugs. You know, <laughs> man, the idea that you were running each mile inspired by a particular ally, bro, that's, that just moved me. Like, when I go for my run later today, I may only go for 5K, but, you know, I've got at least one kilometer for both of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I want to I segue quickly to our final point. And then, Colleen, we're going to talk a little bit about the the extraordinary power of relationships okay charles your point number five is empathy what i love about the examples you gave was you know the sheer power of kindness tell us how empathy played a role in going from Heron to harvard right so the first thing and this is something that everyone can do i mean this is the the simplest easiest thing to do is to really listen with heart listen to the people that you love and care about with heart Right. And when I say with heart, I mean, listen for what they're feeling. Ask, ask them questions about what they're talking about. This is what we call follow up questions. Uh, you know, generally, genuine, genuinely give your full attention to that individual. Removing the thoughts about what you think and how you feel and what happened to you. Right. That's the first step, really. Uh, and it happens so rarely that when you do it, it has a big impact on people. This is what happened with the secretary at Johnson and Johnson. And then I would say small acts of kindness, just showing people that you care. Yeah, I used to buy donuts mm-hmm. for my colleagues when, when I worked at Otis Elevator in the U.S. I worked there for a couple of years after after uh, after after Harvard. And we, we bonded around the donuts every month. <laughs> and then I learned what donut this oh uh Jane, she likes the jelly donut. John, yeah. he likes the glazed donut. And then I would bring the box of donuts, they would open it up every month. They say, Oh, you got my favorite donut. Right? So yeah. little things like that. You know, I so souvenirs when I would travel, the secretary at Chase, I would go to Indonesia or Hong Kong, come back, give her a souvenir. You know what? 
she would give me extra vacation days because she kept track of the vacation days. Incredible. <laughs> she said, oh, Charles, don't worry. It's okay. Um, so, you know, this thing with, 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 with empathy, the more you show people that you care about them, do little things that show you care about them, the more likely they are to become an ally for you and show you that, that, that they care about you. Now, it doesn't happen 100% of the time. We have sociopaths, right, who can't really sure. feel empathy for anyone. But for the vast majority of people, they will reciprocate that act of kindness. What I love about this is the how behavioral science is being used. It's like, mm. it, but it's coming from a genuine place. It's like the absolute emotion of knowing the specific type of donut someone likes, or when you give someone a particular chocolate or a souvenir that, that links to their, something they genuinely care about, you're creating these emotional powerful emotional patterns that really do inspire people to go past logic. I mean, I've had in my own life where I've seen where people would give me an opportunity that I wasn't even prepared for because I'd made some sort of deposit emotionally into their life. Kali, there must be some stuff around that's happening in the brain that you want to share about the power of relationships here. Well, I think it's not just the power of relationships, but it's how, how conscious Charles was in his experience of relationships and in his social world. So we know that the brain is designed for social. I mean, 95% of our waking thoughts are all about other people. Our need to, the brain is wired for survival. Our need to belong and um, to be part of a tribe is how we stay alive when we were wandering around the savannah. But our tribal instincts are um, protective instincts. It's defensive. It's, it's, it's how to keep it, how to, how to, how to live. Whereas what Charles has done is he's risen above that kind of survival. Charles, you're talking about racism, in-group, out-group, reactive, me-first, egocentric kind of behavior that we tend to function in our social units. He consciously rose above that in order to be inclusive, to make relationships. He was mindful. He was present in his uh, engagement, the way he engaged with people, the way he communicated with people um, and they responded by making him part of their, their in-group. So Charles, I know it was, it, it's part of your style and it's part of who you are, but there's very few people who are so conscious in how they're using that, navigating the social world. Usually people are reactive and defensive because that's the default state of the brain. For those who are going, okay, how do I figure this out? If it's not that natural to me, maybe you can consider the framework of the emotional bank accounts, see it as a deposit. Yeah. You know, consider consider that I have an account with everyone. The fact that you guys did this for me uh, coming on my show today, I want to say thank you because that was a deposit and I owe you guys. <laughs> I appreciate it. I mean, you're making deposits that really matter on so many levels professionally. If I, if And I can already tell you that if something comes up that I could see in my network to offer you guys opportunities, that deposit is going to matter. And I want everybody to realize that these deposits really sit in our deeper unconscious mind. I really feel like we could even do a part two of this because there's so much into this story and there's so much when it comes to how the brain, you know, relates to Charles's story. Um, I could see us doing a masterclass in the future. Would you guys be open to that at some point? Absolutely. Timothy, you know, anything for you, brother. <laughs> Man, you have no idea how much I appreciate it. I mean, and Charles, I appreciate your consistency, even on a social level. If it's bringing someone a beautiful bottle of wine and then educating them. I mean, you've made extraordinary deposits into my life. Uh, Colleen, you know, 
I've heard about your work. When um, Charles first introduced me to the idea of having you on the show, it didn't click. And then I went to your website and I want to say you're doing beautiful, brilliant work uh, with the brain and your coaching team and so forth. So I really appreciate you guys. So Charles Henderson, Dr. Colleen Lightbody, thanks for joining me on the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you. My pleasure. A huge thanks to Charles and Dr. Lightbody. I've shared links to both of their work in the show notes, but you can go to Charles's website at hendersonharper.com and Colleen's at brainwise.co.za. We're rooting for you as you build your story and shift from your here to there. I hope this episode helps. Until next time.